Well, hello and welcome again to the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint Live series. Um, my name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. If you're not familiar with the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint, uh, started this organization now, I guess, about two and a half years ago to raise awareness about the issue of restraint and seclusion uh, occurring in schools. Uh, that said, we're, we're not only concerned about restraint and seclusion, but also suspension, expulsion, corporal punishment, uh, all the things that are done to kids in the name of behavior. And we'll talk a little bit about some of that today as well. Um, but we're also very interested in where these things happen in other settings. So uh, in the troubled teen industry, in hospitals, uh, you know, we think that we can do better than restraint and seclusion uh, in any place that we might be working with people. So our mission is really about educating the public and bringing people together to ultimately change minds, laws, policies, and practices so that restraint and seclusion are reduced and eliminated uh, in schools and other settings beyond. Uh, our vision is to see safer schools for students, teachers, and staff. So uh, really kind of working hard to provide information like what we're doing here today uh, with our live series. And today, uh, I'm very excited uh, to have a guest joining us. And this is actually um, Robin Rosigno, who's going to be joining us. This is her second appearance with us. And uh, she is joining an elite club. We only have a couple of uh, people that have been here uh, twice now to present for us and uh, love Robin's work. And we'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment. Uh, but we're going to be talking about how to move past teaching compliance uh, towards teaching self-determination and self-advocacy. Uh, any of you that follow the Alliance know that we're we're very concerned about compliance-based approaches. We want to move to really being supportive of, of children and, and all individuals uh, and moving past compliance to, to connection and uh, relationship and all those things that are so, so critical. So really excited to have Robin here today, and I'm going to introduce her in just a moment. I uh, do want to let you know that we will be taking questions after Robin's presentation. So uh, if you have questions, you're welcome to ask those at any point. Uh, and I'll keep an eye on those in the chat, but we will be taking the questions after the presentation. And as always, these sessions are recorded. So this will be recorded. Uh, we are streaming right now live to Facebook and YouTube, uh, but they are recorded, available at both places afterwards. We also make them available as an audio podcast. So if you wanna listen on the go, you can do that as well. And you can find that on uh, iTunes or Spotify or any of your favorite uh, places to find podcasts. So with that, let me go ahead and introduce Robin. So Robin, welcome. Uh, I'm going to give a little introduction to, to tell folks who you are and feel free to jump in with anything you want to add as well. Okay. So uh, of course, I, I feel like uh, what I've known you for probably about a year and a half now or so, not long after we started the Alliance uh, and got to have a couple of nice conversations with you and hear about the work that you're doing. You, of course, are a scholar and a practitioner uh, specializing in education for neurodivergent children. Uh, you're a PhD candidate. Uh, I want to make sure that's still right. And okay. Um, yep. Uh, and because uh, I know it's been a while, like, have you finished that yet? Uh, at Rutgers. That's a low blow, guy. Oh, no, 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 no. no. It didn't mean it that way. No, <laughs> Just no. kidding. I, you know, I, I, yeah, I, pulled your humor. I pulled your bio from the last one. I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to insult. So um, you're all good. And, and uh, so Rutgers University Graduate School of Education, and you consult with school districts uh, and parents on a range of topics. And I know that's one of the ways we connected initially was hearing about some of the work you were do doing with school districts. Uh, you were awarded the Irving uh, K. Zola Award for Emerging Scholars in Disability Studies from the Society of Disability Studies uh, for your article. Uh, uh, some Semiotic. Semiotic. Thank you. A stalemate resisting restraint and seclusion through, I'm going to let you pronounce this for me. Uh, 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 gua, uh, guattery. It's, thank it's you. Thank you. I'm Micro, probably butchering it also. Politics of desire. Thank you. Um, which combined with your scholarly in interest and uh, 
uh, your anti uh, restraint seclusion activism, you know, you're, you're involved in doing a lot of really amazing work. Uh, of course, you know, what I don't have in here in uh, your bio is all the other amazing things you're doing. Uh, you know, um, your TikTok uh, channel, which is, has gotten huge. Uh, and and just all of the education that you've been doing, um, I think I'd reached out to you after I saw your recent TED talk, which I thought was really amazing because you know uh, you have um, you know not only more knowledge than than anybody I can ever think of I, I've talked to in in regard to certain areas and things like ABA, uh, but you know at the same time uh, you know you have an approach that's very understanding where people have been and where they're coming from and, and really being uh, somebody that's there to help. So uh, really happy to have you today and and want to thank you for coming back. This is your second time here. I think uh, Mona and Lori have also been here a second time. So you that's are a, an, elite, an, elite an elite club. club. <laughs> an elite club. So thank you so much. And I know we have a lot of people uh, that are joining us today to watch. So Thanks for joining us, Robin. Hey, everybody. Um, so I'm going to pull up my presentation. Um, I'll take questions at the end. Um, and I let me get to it. Um, All right. And I have your presentation on screen. You can go ahead and go ahead and hit um, uh, play from the start. Right. You got it. And I'm going to disappear once you start that uh, and let you take it away. Okay. So the title of this talk is like moving beyond compliance. Um, but really what I planned on doing is to kind of do a little bit of a deep dive on ABA because it is a topic I talk about um, a lot on my uh, different social medias um, and it's something I write and publish about um, a lot. Um, sorry, one second. Let me just shut the door because my dog... And fortunately, my dogs have left the uh, the room. Otherwise, they would be joining Robin's dogs, and we would have a lot of dogs. Sorry, <laughs> life of a life of a working parent. Um, so I really wanted to kind of get into you know ABA because I do get asked questions a lot, and that's kind of like my wheelhouse um, and something I have some expertise about. So I want to get into like what ABA is, um, how it relates to schools and compliance. Um, and particularly schooling for neurodivergent kids, and then talk about some of the ways that we can kind of push back against compliance-based teaching. Um, and we're going to get into it. So about me, uh, Guy had a, such a nice introduction. I don't think I have to go much deeper other than um, where you can find me, which is uh, uh, A-U-Teach, A-U-Teach. Um, dot com, um, and also I'll teach on TikTok, um, and you'll find all sorts of good stuff there. Lovely community. I now have like a little community you can like, um, you know, join and have a discussion. And I have a parenting class coming up. So if you want to find any of that stuff, that is where it is. Okay, so we're gonna do a little bit of a history lesson. I am an educational historian. Um, that is really where my research centers, and I do archival research in the archives of five prominent uh, early ABA practitioners or behaviorists. Um, so, you know, you may kind of know that behaviorism comes from um, this idea of conditioning, and, you know, it starts very early with Pavlov. We all know the kind of famous Pavlovian dog. They rang the bell. The dog salivates. Um because the person is holding meat. And then eventually when they removed the meat and they rang the bell, the dog still salivated. So they conditioned a response. Um, classical conditioning is when the thing that happens is a natural response. So you're conditioning the salivation of the dog. 
um, which is you know a natural kind of processes. It's a neutral stimulus, which is the bell, and it's an unconditioned response, meaning your body just does it. Um, so we move from that to operant conditioning, which is the foundation of ABA, modern ABA. Um, it starts with B.F. Skinner, um, who was a you know professor at Harvard. He was a couple different places before that, but he, he spent most of his career at Harvard. Um, and he kind of pushed classical conditioning to the place where you're conditioning a response with a conditioned stimulus. So let's say I, um, you know, want you to, um, you know, match flashcards or something. Um, and I am conditioning that response of you matching the flashcards using rewards and consequences. Um, at first, and Skinner primarily experimented on animals. So Skinner himself did not do a lot of studies with humans. Um, he primarily did uh, studies with animals, but a lot of his colleagues uh, were very quick, quick to start um, experimenting um, with the idea of operant conditioning, um, specifically on disabled people very, very early. So early on within the field of ABA, um, the science, the newly kind of, you know, codified science of behaviorism starts to be um, tested on disabled people specifically by one of Skinner's colleagues by the name of Sidney Bijou. And Sidney Bijou is not someone a lot of people know, um, but he is kind of this middle link between Skinner and Lovas, which is the, you know, the kind of, you know, boogeyman of ABA. But, uh, a lot of what he learned actually came from Bijou, who had a lab school at the Rainier School in Washington. Um, Skinner's notorious for his like animal experiments, teaching pigeons how to play ping pong, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and also for his famous air crib um, that he allegedly, you know, had his daughter stay in for the majority of her first year of life, which is a climate controlled box with a rubber sheet on the bottom where the baby would stay inside and be, you know, protected from germs and such. Um, so allegedly his daughter lived in that. Um, and there are some really, really fascinating stuff from the archives all about the Skinner box. So if you ever want to like start a conversation with me at a party, just ask me about Skinner cribs, air cribs. Um, it's something I love to talk about. <laughs> um, so we start doing experiments on disabled people fairly early, um, you know, in really in the 60s and 70s when ABA as a science is becoming really a field um, as opposed to a kind of, you know, a couple people doing different things. It becomes it, it, it becomes organized um, first with the Journal for the Experimental Analysis of Behavior. Uh, in 1958, and then in 1968, the creation of the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. Um, both uh, Lovas and Bijou were heavily involved in both of those publications, um, as was Skinner. Um, and at different times, um, each of them served on the editorial board of both of these journals. So they're very important early figures. Um, Lovas then takes this idea and applies it specifically to autistic people um, and publishes a lot of the early research using applied behavior analysis with autistic people with a specific Lovas method 
that involved 40 hours a week of intensive behavioral intervention. Um, there was a big uh, Life magazine article. Um, I think it's Life. Is it? I'm like blanking. I feel like it's life or time, but I'm pretty sure it's life. Um, about uh, his miracle treatment for autism um, and how he was um, helping uh, quote unquote far gone mental cripples with his um, you know new treatment. So a lot of the current recommendations that 40 hours a week you hear a lot actually comes from Lovas. Um, and he had really extreme methods. Um, so he uh, hit children. Um, he would scare children on purpose as a punishment. Um, he also used electroshock um, at his lab school um, at UCLA, which was called the Young Autism Project. Um, Lovas, incidentally, uh, was also involved in uh, gay and trans conversion therapy, and he published a ton of research on that with George Reckers, um, if anyone is interested in that. Um, so there's overlapping kind of spheres here. Um, so these are some of the pictures from that feature. Um, so this is him screaming in a child's face. Um, this is him working, you know, with a child. Um, all of the pictures he is, you know, a there's a, you know, force to them. I left out the really triggering ones um, because some of them are really um, disturbing. Um, so one of the things that's interesting about ABA um, is that in their early journals, um, which is not com completely uncommon to have advertisements for different types of technologies, um, they really had an abundance of advertisements um, in their early publications. Um, and this is just some of the examples. Um, if you're searching for a successful simian suppressor, primates are your problem. You can get this, you know, thing to hold your monkey so you can do experiments. Um, this is the one that's offering um, shock boxes for sale for, for scientists. Um, and this one, I want to show you a close up. Um, so this is something that was advertised in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. Um, uh, this Humanitas Systems company oops, is now shipping slides for relief uh, from aversion conditioning for male homosexuals, female homosexuals, and male pedophiles, um, and slides for research and desensitization for nudity, social closeness, aggression, authority, uh, dirt, death, uh, etc. Um, so these were like pictures that they would use to like condition people. Um, you know, to be not homosexuals um, or uh, to not fear social closeness, I guess. Um, so they, um, you know, were very much invested in quote unquote social problems. And Skinner actually believed behaviorism to have like a kind of radical progressiveness to it where it could like solve all of society's problems. And if you'd like to read more about Skinner's vision for what that looks like, he actually wrote a utopian novel uh, about a behaviorist utopia called Walden II, um, which is a read and a half. Um, and I, I really think everyone should read it. It is fascinating to say the least. Um, this is another advertisement. Um, an entirely original success-oriented program for rescuing problem children who may range from kids who can't learn in school to plain spoiled brats, kids on pot, and delinquent juveniles. 
Um, these are the kinds of things that were in the early ABA journals. So now when people say, um, well, you know, the problem actually is how it's applied. The field is fine. It's just these bad therapists that are doing it bad. Um, and, you know, I encourage people to look a little bit deeper into the history because that is not the case, actually. Um, the, the early history of the field is, in fact, actually uh, worse. <laughs> um, so we actually need to be aware um, on, a, on a very intimate level of how um, ableist, um, among other things, um, you know, the early field was because it eventually infiltrates schools um, because they were very strategic um, in getting ABA into schools. Um, so for those of you who are unfamiliar, um, these are some of the kind of basic concepts. Um, obviously, you know, there's probably behaviorists watching this and they're going to, you know, say it's not just this. And I know it's not just this, but for people watching, these are some of the... Um, you know, basics. Um, so, you know, our, our environment, you know, our reinforcement environment, um, or our, you know, uh, I guess, can't think of the right word. Um, but the, the environment that we're in, our motivational environment, um, has the ability to increase, uh, you know, behaviors or decrease them. And depending on, um, you know, if they are reinforcing or punishing, um, a negative, so in this, you know, this is in their, you know, uh, framework. So in their framework, there's like four types of reinforcements and punishments. Um, a positive punishment is like a punishment is like given to you. Um, so like you're like hit or like you have to ingest an unpleasant substance, uh, electroshock, chores. Um, I would like to say that I'm in, I'm in uh, making up the ingesting unpleasant substances, but that was actually a very common practice in early ABA to put like lemon juice or vinegar in children's mouths or sprayed in their face. Um, something that was at the time called misting. Um, and I've seen behavior plans with misting in them as recently as 2010. Um, so negative punishment is when something is taken away from you as a punishment. So negative, think, subtract, not negative, like it's bad, but negative, like take away and positive, like add. Okay. Positive reinforcement, you give someone a reward. So I'm going to give you stickers, privileges, money, um, you know, gummy bears, uh, a Skittle cut into four pieces. Um, and then negative reinforcement is when you take away something bad. Um, as a reward. So like less chores, a homework slip, or that seep out sound that, you know, beeps until you turn it off. That is an example of negative reinforcement. So these are the basic kind of tenets, the concepts that frame out what ABA is. Um, there's more to it, but this is the basics. Um, behaviorism as a science uh, was very much invested in a rejection of mentalism, as uh, Skinner's term, um, basically, the idea that um, it was a rejection, really, of Freudian psychoanalysis, but it was an it was a an attempt to make behavior into a hard science, right? So to to say to treat behavior of human beings, animals, etc., the way that you would observe a chemical reaction, 
Um, if we can't see it, it didn't happen. Um, it did happen, but we can't, it's not reliable, right? People are unreliable narrators. What goes on in our minds is uh, second to what we do in terms of our behavior. Um, so everything in behaviorism is kind of about this operant conditioning, right? So the things we think even within this framework are part and parcel of how things have gone for us prior. Um, so what has been reinforcing and punishing in the past will dictate how we feel in the present. Um, and so our feelings even are now uh, offshoots um, of our own operant conditioning from the world. Um, and this is something Skinner talked about often. Um, he believed that freedom is actually impossible and that you're always controlled by something, by some forces. And so therefore it is not unethical for people to manipulate and control the behavior of others. Um, and he has a book about that called Beyond Freedom and Dignity, if you're interested. Um, so this gets kind of codified into a field. And then around the mid eighties, a behaviorist by the name of Brian Awada, um, puts forward this idea of the functions of behavior. And this is where we get into school, really, because we all know that our students get an FBA, the idea that behaviors have functions um, and that they are have to choose between these four is explicitly a behaviorist framing of behavior. Um, there are other ways to understand what goes on for kids. Um, that is not this, um, but they, it is written into IDEA now um, that they have to do FBA um, and that this is the framework really that most people use. Um, so he put forth this idea that there's these behaviors uh, that all pretty much all human behaviors can be boiled down to um, a need for one of these things. Uh, so in either a need to escape, need for attention, um, a need for something tangible or to avoid something tangible that you're either seeking or avoiding one of these things or sensory slash automatic, they call it automatic reinforcement. Um, so these are, I learned it as meats. Um, sometimes you'll hear it called eats because um, they don't put the medical in there. Um, but these are the functions of behavior. So we all have had FBAs done for our kids, but I just want to kind of make the point that this is not a universally accepted theory of behavior, a, there are other paradigms that view behavior differently. Um, and that's an important thing to note because it'll be presented as if it is the only and most truest uh, option um, when there are other ways and other frameworks to look at behavior, things like Mona Delahook's work, uh, things like trauma-informed teaching. Uh, things like responsive classroom, um, all of those things, DIR, um, are things that think about behavior outside of this particular framework. So important to know where things come from. Um, so this is actually, I'm going to skip this for now. It's not that important for now. Um, but there are early critiques of Skinner, most notably from Noam Chomsky. If you're all interested in like niche behaviorist history, you should definitely read Chomsky's uh, review of verbal behavior. Um, and also he has a piece called The Case Against B.F. Skinner, which is um, an epic drag for the ages. Um, so how does ABA kind of come into the autism world? 
Um, you have Lovas doing these experiments, right? He's at UCLA. He's got this miracle clinic. Um, but it's not necessarily universal like it is now. So now like every autistic child will get a script for ABA. Um, but in the early 90s, that was not necessarily the case. You had to kind of seek it out. Um, so this changes around the mid 90s when we have you know, the growth of like parent organizations, you have Dan, you have Taka, you have um, uh, Autism Speaks, um, all kind of coming into focus at this time. And then this New York Times bestseller comes out called Let Me Hear Your Voice that comes out in 1994. Um, and it's about a family's triumph over autism, um, specifically, um, it was it's a, it's a pen name, it's not her real name. Um, she writes about Lovas basically curing her child um, of autism. Uh, the book is, um, I don't recommend uh, reading it if you have, if you're autistic, um, that's for sure. Um, but it is very much that kind of, you know, my family is a victim to autism uh, narrative. And it took off um, in a way that actually kind of increased the demand for ABA services to a very, um, you know, uh, significant level. Um, so here's, um, so here's like a little, I can read a little bit of it. My first reaction, this is to getting the diagnosis, was one of bone chilling fear. Something about Anne-Marie might correspond with something in each one of those categories of behavior. I didn't, I couldn't dismiss what I was reading uh, about immediately and absolutely. No, thank God it's not that rose to my lips. Instead, something inside me recoiled, crouched down in terror. Um, and this is like the tone of this book and it was um, immensely popular. Um, okay, so I wanna kind of pivot to how does ABA um, relate to restraint and seclusion um, and there are two main professional organizations for uh, the field of ABA. One is the BACB, which is responsible for licensing and credentialing. Um, and the other one is ABAI, ABA International. Um, one of the things ABA International does is they put out position statements for the field. Um, so it's an important place to look um, when you're thinking about what's going on in the field. Um, and these are the statements that they're putting out. They update them somewhat, um, but some of them, you know, the old ones are still there. Um, so there are a lot of things in this, um, but one of the things that's important um, is that they argue that students have a right, um, and this is kind of what I argue in that article, uh, Semiotics Tell Me, they argue that uh, autistic kids have actually a right to receive, quote, the most effective treatment, which sounds on a surface level um, uh, like a good thing. Um, but in their mind, that includes, like, let's say it's like more effective for me to electroshock you to get you to stop banging your head than it is to teach you self-regulation skills over a long period of time. You actually have a right in their estimation to be electroshocked. Um, because decisions on the use of potentially restrictive treatment are based on the consideration of its absolute and relative level of restrictiveness, the amount of time required to produce a clinically significant outcome, and the consequences that would result from delayed intervention. And so 
they kind of use this language to argue that um, it is actually a violation of the child's rights um, to have treatment that takes longer. Um, and so obviously, if you, um, you know, punish somebody or <laughs> um, have, a, you know, kind of extreme consequence, it's going to work quicker. Um, and so that's why we see a lot of, um, you know, restraint and kind of aversive interventions being defended using this logic. So an important thing to note is that prior to 1998, to do ABA, you actually had to be a psychologist. Um, so you had to have a degree in psychology um, and or another related field. Um, but in 1998, the BACB is formed and that kind of creates the licensure for ABA. So it's actually relatively recent, um, you know, not that 98 is so recent, but I remember 98, um, so it can't be that long ago. Um, they start creating this BAC, uh, BCBA certification, um, which really pushes, you know, so Maurice is like kind of one important moment um, and then the, the, the standalone certification kind of launching it into the popularity that it is now because you have tons and tons and tons of people entering the field and a real lobbying effort um, to have this licensure rec uh, uh, recognized on the state level. Um, and so then you start seeing these like, you know, ABA experts, but, but the course sequence um, to become a BCBA is not a full master's degree. It is a... Um, last time I checked, either six or eight courses, and the RBT is even less. Um, so how does behaviorism look in school? So in addition to your regular kind of ABA, um, you know, that you're seeing with, you know, one-on-one -on -one with autistic kids, you also see behaviorist ideas in the general education classroom. It is really infiltrated education at large. Um, so you see these little kind of like, earn money, um, you know, things, I'm working for free time. A lot of these kind of external reward systems are rooted in uh, behaviorism. Um, and there tends to be this kind of like niche debate, well, like that's ABA and that's, you know, behaviorism, the science is different than ABA. According to the uh, editors of JABA, which is the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, ABA is nothing more than the science of behaviorism applied to real world problems. So they are not necessarily um, that different. In fact, one is just an application of a kind of, you know, academic science. Okay, so... ABA becomes a treatment um, because we have the interest conversions of all these parent organizations, the kind of growing awareness of ABA as a science, ABA uh, as an institution is extremely um, proactive about lobbying. Um, and then you have a ton of kids being diagnosed all at the same time. Um, and we start to get ABA covered by health insurance um, in the 90s. So this is just two laws, but it becomes, you know, the only quote unquote therapy for autism um, covered by insurance, um, which creates kind of a, you know, a situation where 
um, you know, kids are going to experience this in school, but then also when parents go to get help for their kids, this is, you know, sometimes the only option. So here are some of the criticism. Um, so this is, uh, you know, Amy Sukunzia. Uh, if you want something from me, if you want me to do something, respect who I am, respect my way of doing things, listen to me and allow me to disagree and find my own way. ABA rejects all of this and that's why I failed at it. Um, so these are um, some other quotes. So uh, Lovas said this in his 1981 book, the me book, this is where Lovas first spelled out ABA. With responsibility, the developmentally disabled individual takes on dignity and acquires certain basic rights as a person. No one has the right to be taken care of, no matter how arsler he is. So put your child to work, his work is to learn. Um, and so then Amy goes on to say, so there you have it. Y'all are uh, demanding insurance pay for a therapy invented by a man who literally thinks we're not people. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's a lot of criticism about ABA. I want to kind of get into my approach to that um, and how we can kind of approach, you know, life as it is um, with criticality and also nuance. Um so this is like a like a early or study eighty four. This is where they're talking about the um, the misting three punishment procedures. The contingent application of water mist, lemon juice, and vinegar were evaluated using a reversal design, um, and they were using this for self stimulatory hand touching, um, apparently. So and then they go on to say the subject showed an intense reaction when both the lemon juice and vinegar were delivered and his reactions were uh, as much a deterrent to on task behavior during training sessions as his self stimulations and his reactions. This is what this person is doing. Um, an 11 year old um, is uh, when he's being sprayed in the face with vinegar. Uh, he is trunk twisting, arm flapping and leg extension, as well as grimacing, spitting, coughing, screaming and crying. Um, and this is 84. So um, this is not, um, you know, it, it's not just 1960 that this was going on. Um, this is a contemporary of Iwata who um, came up with the uh, function thing. So just, a, you know, if you want to know where really what's going on in the field, you need to read their publications. Um, and that's where you'll find what it is like now or then. Um, so this, um, you know, there are schools built on ABA. One of the most kind of, you know, um, shining examples uh, is the Judge Rottenberg Center. Um, as we all know, I'm sure uh, there was a ban on the device. Uh, the FDA instituted a ban on the device that they were using uh, to shock its residents. Um, and it was overturned because Judge Rottenberg Center actually fought for the rights uh, going back to the, you know, right to effective treatment, actually fought for the right to be able to give people this, you know, effective treatment. Um, and that's the argument that they use. Um, they've also used prolonged restraint, food deprivation, deep muscle pinching, forced inhalation of ammonia, um, and sensory assault techniques for behavior modification. Um, and there's a lot you can see on this. I actually did, um, on my own channel, I did a, a, a live stream with Lydia Brown and uh, Shane Neumeyer about, um, about the JRC. Um, and there's some follow-up actions you can look at on my website and also on the Alliance's website, I'm sure. Um, so here's some of the protests. That's Lydia and Shane. Um, 
So going back to the ABAI, um, this is their position on restraint and seclusion. Um, they have a right to choose. The parents, uh, the individuals and the parents have a right to choose. Um, but obviously, you know, minors, the parents are choosing. Um, and so here we go. Um, they say, one may conclude from this premise that a non-intrusive intervention that permits dangerous behavior to continue while limiting participation in learning activities and community life or results in a more restrictive placement may be considered more restrictive than a more intense intervention that is effective and enhances quality of life. So again, there's a lot of like wordsmithing around, um, you know, the right of children to be restrained. Um, and that is actually how it is framed, that they have a right to receive this effective treatment. Um, uh, so they also say when in the context of a behavior intervention plan, restraint in some cases serves both a protective and a therapeutic function. This is coming from ABAI. Uh, these procedures can reduce the risk of injuries and can facilitate learning opportunities that support appropriate behavior. So, you know, you see a lot of defense about like ABA is not like that now, it's like different, whatever. Um, but this is um, their current um, statement, position statement, um, where they are, are saying that restraint can be instructive. Um, and that is actually a defense that's used in restraint cases. Um, so you can read that on your leisure. Um, so this is getting into like what to do. Okay, so what do we do with all of this information? I'm sure I've horrified you all significantly. Um, all of the parents are freaking out right now because their kid is an ABA, um, but it's, it doesn't seem like it's like this and, and we have a lot of confusion. Um, so I will tell you that there are a couple of concepts that come from ABA that are very helpful. Um, one of them is task analysis. So the idea of breaking down a big task into it's separate components and teaching them one at a time is a great idea, um, very effective. Along those lines, there's also backwards and forwards chaining, which is has to do with the order that you teach those tasks. So backwards chaining would be that you teach, you know, if there's 10 steps you would teach, you would give them something with all, you know, nine of them complete except the last one, they would just do the last one. And then you would backwards chain it. So then it would be, you give them eight, they do two, you know, seven, three, there you go. Um, forward chaining is the same, but like forward. Um, so these are really helpful concepts. And reinforcement is not a horrible thing. Um, it can be a great thing. It like happens naturally. Um, but the manipulation of external reinforcement that some autistic kids um, and neurodivergent kids in general, um, they live in these kind of worlds where their life is dictated by these reward systems at all times, at all times of the day and at home and at school um, is where it becomes really um, excessive, um, especially when their kind of preferred items are being held hostage. Um, so here are some of the criticisms. There's no autonomy. It's compliance based. Um, there are uh, places that are still using aversives, which is, you know, introducing something negative or aversive as a behavioral um, kind of teaching technique. Um, there's an extensive time commitment. Um, they're recommending lots and lots of hours. Um, and there's a focus on performing these desired traits. Um, and not always, um, you know, as I've seen some places that really are focusing on more um, student-centered um, tasks, um, but there are some 
places that really are very much focused on these like kind of socially appropriate behaviors that aren't necessarily um, important at the level that they are being, um, you know, <laughs> explained as. So I'm going to end it here so that I can just talk to you. Um, so I'm going to, yay. Hey, um, hey. I, I just dropped off the presentation. So uh, it sounded like you just wanted to kind of answer some questions and talk about some things. Yeah. So I want to kind of talk about like my approach, like mm -hmm. to ABA and to okay. Aut, you know, what I do. Okay. Um, so I am a realist. I help parents all the time. Most of the parents I work with, their kids are in, a, in some form of ABA, um, actually. Um, and I do a lot of harm reduction work around existing within the systems that already exist because it is really hard to exist outside of them and sometimes most of the time existing outside of them takes a level of you know racial and class privilege that not everybody has um and so it is not always entirely possible um to avoid um in fact it's very hard to avoid it completely um so it's in schools it is often the only therapy your insurance covers um, and so I do a lot of work helping parents, you know, look at goals, look at their kids' programs, observe their therapists, um, figure out, like, how to find, you know, a therapist within the ABA realm that is going to, you know, be okay for their child. Um, and so that's really what I want to kind of, you know, we can talk about in the Q&A is, like, how do you do that? Um, and how do we move beyond that if possible? Like what would it look like to not have this govern our schools in the way that it does? Um, because it is uh, ubiquitous um, at this point. Um, and that is not accidental, as you probably could say, it is very much strategic. Um, so um, I think any good questions, we can go there or we can, I can kind of just talk more about that. Can I um, throw a couple questions at you? And I'll yeah. just take the moment now also to let people know that are watching. Uh, if you want to ask a question, go ahead and put it in the chat. Uh, but but I'll start off with one or two. Um, so um, first of all, thank you for the presentation. Um, I find your, your research and your knowledge on this is just really um, amazing. And uh, every time I talk to you, I feel like I learn a number of things. Um, I, I think I probably shared with you personally before my experience with my son, who is autistic, and, and we never did ABA. And it wasn't because at the time we were taking a stand against ABA, but rather by the time it was recommended, essentially, they said, well, ABA is kind of the gold standard. This is what we typically do. But your son's a little old for that. So I never really dug into it or looked into it. Um, however, subsequently, having started uh, the alliance and having gotten involved um, working with um, a lot of individuals, including a lot of autistic self-advocates. Um, I have learned more about uh, ABA through the voices of people that have actually been through it. And, and that's had a tremendous influence on me because, you know, what I had heard uh, up until now is, well, ABA is the only uh, evidence-based approach to, uh, you know, treating children with autism, mm -hmm. those are my air quotes there. Um, and of course, um, you know, that's kind of how things are being framed out there. But I don't understand how you can have an evidence-based practice that doesn't 
consider the evidence from people that have been through it. So can you talk a little bit about that, about the fact that, you know, this is a solution, as you mentioned, for a lot of reasons, the fact that insurance is covering and otherwise, but is being recommended, um, but seems to be missing some really key data. Um, what would you say to that? <laughs> so anything is possible when you create an echo chamber. Right. Um, and so, you know, historically, uh, you know, ABA as a field really does not play well with others. Um, and they actively, it is actually in their code um, of ethics that they can't actually recommend other therapies that are not considered research-based, but they have a very narrow definition of what is research, right? And so they believe that empirical observation-based research is the only research that's valid. Um, and so they don't, because of Skinner really trying to make behaviorism a um, hard science, right? So, but we know that that's not all that research can do, right? So we have things like um, qualitative research, right? People doing interviews of people who have been through it. Yeah. Um, we have like neuroscience that they completely reject. Um, they won't even look at it. Or, you know, uh, we have stuff coming from other branches of psychology. Um, but when you make the rules of what is research and you only count what you do as research, surprise, surprise, you find that you're the only one that is research-based. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, so it is very much, um, you know, it is a follow the money kind of situation. Um, it is a you know very lucrative industry, and there is a vested financial interest in maintaining that control over the industry. And so it is actually a kind of you know it is not go they're not going to find <laughs> that other things are okay. <laughs> um, does that make sense? Um, <laughs> because it is really not in their best interest. Mm -hmm. Um, and they actively, um, anyone who speaks out, you know, at, at remotely critical, um, are met with really intense scrutiny, um, and, um, uh, retaliation really. Um, I mean, look what he, they did to Alfie Cohn. They went after Alfie Cohn for years over mm -hmm. punished by rewards, mm -hmm. which it, he really tiptoed around them. Honestly, he was like too nice. I think, mm -hmm. um, you know, he really talked about rewards, but he didn't really necessarily go as hard as he could. Mm -hmm. Um, and they, there, I found articles from them and like major journals called a call to arms about mm -hmm. Alfie Cohn, right? Um, yeah, coming yeah. after him yeah. with a call well, to arms. Right, right. And, and that seems to be happening today. I mean, you mentioned uh, Judge Rotenberg. And uh, of course, it's hard to believe here in 2021 that there's actually a facility here in the United States that's using electroshock on people um, to change or modify behavior. I mean, it's just unbelievable to me. And I've, you know, seen a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the, the interviews and the videos and seen the fear that, that children had of, of what was happening. Um, yet I think it was this last year that, uh, I want to say, I, I don't remember which organization it was one of the two organizations that actually featured speakers from Judge Rotenberg talking about essentially pushback, um, that they were getting, uh, from the community. And so they're, they're still a very active, uh, I would say propaganda machine, but ABAI is platforming yeah. them. So yeah, yeah, yeah. ABAI has had multiple panels 
accepted right. to their national conference of put together specifically to defend Judge Rottenberg, right, right or Rodenberg or whatever. I call it Rottenberg, but I think that's Freudian. Um, You're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that pronunciation, though. <laughs> I'm going to like stick with it. Yeah. Uh, typo, and it stays. Yeah. Um, well, you, you, know, and you, you mentioned ABAI, and that, that statement on restraint and seclusion, you may remember, I want to say it's around 2011 that that came out. Yeah. Uh, it, it's been a while. I actually uh, reached out to them to see if they had a more um, recent statement. I mean, that's been over a decade. So, um, you know, do you, have, you, have you changed your position? Uh, never got a response. I reached out twice. Um, so, you know, that's probably in and of itself an answer. Uh, yeah. yeah. So we, we've gotten a number of questions now in the chat. So let me start with a couple of those. Uh, and the first one is you mentioned DIR framework, and they just wanted to know if you could explain what that was. Sure. So DIR stands for Developmental Individual Difference and Relationship-Based. Um, it is a... Uh, kind of relationship-based, obviously, developmental um, intervention started by Stanley, uh, Stanley Greenspan, Dr. Stanley Greenspan, um, who is no longer with us. Um, but it's a kind of play-based way of expanding on natural strengths, but then also, you know, aiding kids in their development through play. Um, and it, it was very, very popular in like the 90s, early 2000s. Um, you know, Greenspan passed away, it kind of like faded a little bit and I feel like it's like coming back. Um, but it is, you know, that's what Mona Delahook, uh, yeah. you know, that's her background. Um, I'm trained in DIR myself. Um, my mom was like a DIR, like my brother was diagnosed when we were kids. I was diagnosed as an adult. Um, but my brother was diagnosed and, and my mom was like a Greenspan follower, like in the nineties. So like when everyone was doing ABA, my mom was like doing four times. She was like, so I've been, you know on the on this side for a while um but it is a lovely um you know way to interact with children um and if you can um you know seek out they do have parent trainings um one of the major organizations that does it is called icdl um and they do parent trainings that are relatively affordable and they're great especially if you have young children mm -hmm. okay uh so another question here from marion ask uh, well first of all says thank you how do we reframe the terms of ETA to be more trauma-informed and individually sensitive, uh, person-centered? Am I just blanking on what ETA is? Well, you know, I thought I was. So uh, maybe we can ask for some clarification. I, okay. I, I thought for a second I was, and I'm like, okay, well, probably um, where I'm coming from. All I could think of was estimated time of arrival. Um, so Mary, maybe if you can uh, clarify um, what you're looking for in that, we'll come back to your question. Uh, all right. So, uh, okay. So let's go to another question here. Uh, can you please give an example of how to get positive changes without using ABA? Uh, example of kindergartners having difficulty transitioning from circle time to centers. Uh, what can be done or how to toilet train without bribing with M&Ms? <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm going to first say, like, I live in the real world. I joke all the time that, like, I'm, you know, no rewards until, like, you know, it's a bad day at my house. And I'm like, I'll buy you an LOL if you stop. Um, <laughs> so I'm a real life parent. I know that, like, you know, to me, rewards like that are to get over a hump, right? They're like, you know, just like you would with a typically developing child, right? If you have a really something you're majorly struggling with, you're going to use it for a short time. But what happens with our kids, right, is it becomes their whole life and they want us to live our lives by a token chart. They wanted to have it at home for this, for that. And they don't want that you to take away everything from them and make them earn everything, right? Um, 
And that's where it becomes a problem. We intrinsically, like as parents, like have moments where we are going to bribe our kids. And that's not what we're talking about. That, that kind of like here and there, right? We're talking about intensive, repetitive um, control using outward reinforcers. Um, so they're kind of two different things. Um, but there's lots of different ways to get positive change. So transitioning from a circle time to centers, um, we really have to figure out why we're having a difficult transitioning from circle time to centers is because we really like circle time. Is it because there's something about centers that's difficult? Um, is it because the chaos of people all getting up at one time and having to maneuver around all of those people to get where you're gonna go is the problem? Um, and all of those can have different solutions, right? So maybe it's that your child sits down five minutes longer than everybody else with an aid until everyone is seated at their next center and then transitions alone. Um, or maybe it's that we look at the centers and we find out which center is like, you know, the funnest, like they like the most, and we just make sure that that's first every time, mm -hmm. right? So I mean, there's lots of different ways, or it's we use our affect and our voice and our relationship um, to help that child through that transition, right? Like you can become almost like that transition object um, by being like, I'm gonna sit with you and then I'm gonna come with you, right? And doing that nice co-regulation. Mm -hmm. um, so there's lots and lots of ways to do it. And it really just depends on like, you know, troubleshooting. Toileting, um, I do a lot on toileting. Like I would say 50% of the consulting I do is toilet training. Um, and the way that I teach it is that Toilet training is always seen as a behavioral issue, just behavioral, right? We got to teach you to toilet, you know, we got to motivate you. Um, when really there's a lot of things that go into toilet training. Um, it can be emotional or trauma, right? Um, kids will control toileting as a means to control other things in their life because it's one of the only things they have control over us. Um, it can be physical, they may not be physically ready. Um, it could be sensory. They may not be feeling that they have to go. You can have that interoception. It can also be fear of the bathroom because of sensory reasons. Um, and we go through all of this, right? Like, I mean, sometimes it's as simple as honestly, I've had people buy a sits bath to put in the toilet because the toilet's too deep and they don't like that. It looks like a black hole and they can't see the bottom. Right. So it, it, we troubleshoot that. Um, it could be, um, executive functioning that they're having a hard time planning when to go, um, or, and then the last one, it can be behavioral, right? But we have to look at all five of them to really figure out why toilet training is not working. Um, and then troubleshoot, you know, in our areas, you know, I have parents like rank them almost like, which one do we think is like the most significant? We look at all their evaluations and then we kind of go from the most impactful on toilet training to the least. So we say, okay, we think it's mostly interoception. So this is what we're gonna do. And then we like move down the list. So it's really like at the root of it, it's assuming that kids do well when they can. And then if they're not, <laughs> there's something wrong. Um, and we have to figure out what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, you you kind of end on that because I was thinking, you know, kind of in, in relation to that question, you know, about the difficulty transitioning, uh, that, that fits in very nicely with a model like Collaborative Proactive Solutions from, from Dr. Ross Green. Um, you know, there certainly are there models out there uh, that people people can use other than using behaviorism and ABA and things like that. Uh, and of course, the collaborative practice solutions approach is great because uh, not only does it actually have evidence an evidence based rating, but 
you know, it is very relational. It's about relationships and working with kids. And like you said, making those assumptions that the kids do well if they can. I uh, want to go back to that question we asked earlier and and did get a response on that. I think really, um, and let me find it here. What what she was talking about is reframing in terms of like the functions of behavior. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah. So, you know, and, and this is, you know, th this is really a common question because, of course, you know, a child's having a difficult time. They do an FBA. They say, OK, well. Uh, you know, here, here's here's the functions of behavior that, that we think are occurring, and here's our hypothesis for a solution. And, and of course, that model is really prevalent in a lot of our schools. So, how do we get people to think about reframing things? So, I think I like the idea of the function of behavior, right? Like the idea at a at a kind of like core level that like behaviors mean something and our attempt to get a need met, right? That is not a problem. The problem happens when you have so many limited choices, all of them frame, you know, we'll use ABA language, the learner as manipulative right. um, and maladaptive, um, as opposed to ever looking at the people around them, right? So it's always, this is for attention, and then what is the, the solution to block access to attention unless they ask for it in these like specific ways, right? So instead of just saying, oh, I think they want attention, I'm gonna give them attention, right? That's the opposite, because now they'll tell you you're reinforcing the bad behavior, right? So meeting the need now is framed as reinforcing the behavior. Um, and so you can't actually, you're actually going to be instructed to do the opposite. So when they want to escape, this, the plan now comes to become block access from escaping, keep the demand on, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're, and we don't want to reinforce that bad behavior. Um, as opposed to saying, Oh, function of behavior, they want to be out of this worksheet now. Like they don't want to be doing it. Um, instead of saying, why do they why do they want to escape this? Is it too hard? Like instead of like reading it on a face level and, and reading it as a valid function, right? Like it is viewed as a maladaptive, manipulative mm -hmm. function. Uh, so I like the idea of function, but I think we could expand it and then we could also neutralize it, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. We could yeah. add control or yeah. coping or like right. those are functions too. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about it and I don't know if you saw it. Uh, Greg Santusi, uh, the occupational therapist, um, had put together kind of a graphic at one point talking about function of behavior. And, and the whole thing was like digging deeper, kind of getting to mm -hmm. the why. And, and, and frankly, I mean, I, I probably shared this with you at one point or another. Uh, I, I remember at one point having a conversation with a behaviorist that said, and I quote, I don't care why. I don't care why it's happening. Uh, I just want to change the behavior. And, and sometimes that's what, uh, you know, I, I've come to see in a lot of behaviors. It's about uh, manipulating and changing behavior rather than understanding why it might be occurring. And, you know, I'm also a big believer in Alpha Cohen's work in terms of like, you know, punished by reward. You know, if, if you do reward and compliance, yes, that can get you a short, short term uh, response, but it doesn't help ultimately to uh, you know, develop intrinsic motivation and, and help kids to really learn skills. It doesn't. And like, you know, when they call like, um, and not, I'm not comparing kids to dogs, but I am saying within dog training, which is based on behaviorism, right? A dog that has been behaviorized using these kind of techniques mm -hmm. is often referred to as a ticking time bomb, right? A dog that has, is, a, is actually a bite risk because they have not been taught coping, they've been taught compliance, and that creates a ticking time bomb situation, right? You actually are just teaching someone to suppress versus cope, right? Because they're, they got it to stop. 
but that impulse is still there. And now it's worse because it's like if you're trying to scratch an itch and someone says, never scratch the itch, and then it, you stop scratching it, everyone says, oh, they don't itch anymore. Now, not only are you itchy, but now you're stressed about not itching it. So it's like worse, right? Like it's like now they're more dysregulated and upset, but on the outside, you you got you got what you wanted, right? Mm -hmm. Which is why you often see this kind of like ladder of behavior, right? So it starts really young. Kids have like a little, you know, they're like doing kid stuff, like climbing on stuff or whatever. They put them in like this rigid ABA, right? Then that creates, you know, extinction burst and then they get like new behaviors or whatever. And now we need more serious intervention because these behaviors are more dangerous than the initial behaviors, right? And then it escalates and escalates and escalates until the point where the fallout from the last one is creating the new one, which creates the need for the more interventions. And that's how we get kids ending up at JRC. Right. We get kids with such extreme behaviors because when we started early, right, we started doing these really restrictive things that were making the kids like, you know, anxious and stressed and then mm -hmm. causing more behaviors. Um, so I really try and get to parents like early so I can kind of like stop that cycle um, or help parents stop that cycle for their kids and say like, no, like, I don't think, you know, like they'll restrain kids for doing this. Mm -hmm. You can die from being restrained and you can't die from this. So which right, one should we right, let happen? Right, right. Um, let me ask you a question before I get to another question from, from the audience. Um, thinking about that, you know, one of the things that always concerns me is looking at the, uh, looking at the goals of any, any type of um, um, approach that's taken. So what are the goals of, of ABA or what are the goals of, of what you're doing, working in a, a certain program? And, uh, you know, one of the things that's always concerned me is, is looking at uh, goals which are kind of essentially trying to make neuro neurodiverse people less neurodiverse or trying to get rid of behaviors that might be adaptive to, um, you know, someone that's autistic, for example. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and kind of, um, you know, what you see in ABA related to that? Yeah. So, I mean, originally, like, it was very much about, like, explicitly stated about teaching socially appropriate behaviors. Lovas said that he could make anyone indistinguishable from their peers. Um, and that was like really the goal. Um, and very openly so, it wasn't like a secret. Um, that was, they would like advertise it. <laughs> um, and you know, that became, you know, now in this like new era, you have a lot of people saying, well, that's not what we do now. Like we don't, you know. And for some people, I will say that is true. Right. I have like ABA people that I refer to because they are doing something different under that umbrella. Right. For whatever financial reasons. OK. Um, but I would say that I just lost my train of thought. Um, hold on. I'm going to find it again. Um, okay. So what I would say, yes, that is true. Um, I will say, though, that I do see some takes on the Internet and I've seen an uptick of parents, um, particularly in my own work, that are, you know, um, not everything that we ask kids to do is like asking them to like master their autism. You mm. know what I mean? I've seen some like takes that are like, right. um, you know, well, like hitting other people is my autism. Like, <laughs> no, like that can't be the case. It may be, mm -hmm. Maybe it's because that's mm -hmm. where it started. But our right to do the things that we do really kind of begins and ends with like the boundaries around us as people and not when we it starts encroaching on the rights of other people. No, that's um, a really important lesson for uh, <laughs> society right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I've seen like, because I have parents, like I will tell you that will be like, um, am I a bad parent because I like brush my kids' teeth? And I'm like, what? 
And like, but then I realized they're getting it in like a lot of spaces, like from like actually autistic people and they really want to listen, but they're like, well, it hurts sensory wise. And that's my autistic trait. Um, you know, like we have to strike like a balance between living in the real world and like, yes, sometimes you have to do things that are uncomfortable as an autistic person. And that's not necessarily the same thing as saying you have to look in people's eyes so they don't know you're autistic. Yeah. So, so how do you, so, you know, like you, and I, and I think we probably had a discussion like this long ago, but, um, you know, I've, um, you know, I've met people that are BCBAs that mm-hmm. seem to follow what I would call a relational model. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they don't seem to really be following what I would call the compliance-based model. Now, mind you, it's not that I've been able to witness all that they do, but from, from, the, uh, from what I've heard or gathered, uh, it seems like there are practitioners out there that are, that are really, uh, I think, you know, not only according to, to parents, but even according to kids sometimes, are having a positive impact. And mm-hmm. I, put, I put a lot of that to relationship myself, and maybe I'm wrong. Um, but, but, you know, how do you determine whether, you know, the um, provider might be somebody that might be helpful in some way or some, you know, you know how, how do you make that distinction? Because we, we've heard like, well, this is a new ABA. And, you know, I, I've talked to people that have uh, background and, and, and that I, I know that are, that are good people doing really valuable work. Uh, but at the same time, I have a lot of concern about the premises behind, and of course the history, the history is yeah. horrific. Um, any, any thoughts on that? Any thoughts? Yeah. On so I'm actually doing a series on TikTok right now, like literally okay. about this. That's like okay. how to find an ABA therapist. Like mm-hmm. if you need to, um, that's going to be like the least harmful. Right. Mm-hmm. So I give a lot of tips in that. Um, some of the, the kind of actionable things, what I tell everybody to follow every ABA agency that they can on indeed.com um, first, figure out who has a huge turnover, figure out how much they pay the ones that are like, don't pay, like they're going to have a huge turnover. They're not going to have good quality people. Um, they're really like quality agencies that are actually trying to improve things are paying like 25 to $50 an hour minimum. Um, so you have to look like at the quality of the agency. Um, then because they're competing for the best therapist with early intervention, right? So if they're not even paying remotely close to that, they're not, it's going to be like kids. Um, so the other thing you can do is when you call, yeah, I tell parents, be really honest when you call and say, listen, I want to tell you about my family, you know, before, is this, you know, something that you can accommodate? We are not a traditional ABA house. I don't really want to use discrete trials. I don't want to, you know, do whatever. Is that something that your agency can accommodate or has experience with? Um, and you'll get two answers. You'll get like, oh yeah, we do it all the time. Like, you know, well, that's how we like practice anyway. Or you'll get, well, what do you mean? What do you mean? Like, well, that's not like, well, the research set, like they'll, you'll get like a, a kind of like know it all pushback, right? Like about like basic requests for, you know, their therapy to fit with your family's culture, which is actually what they should be doing. Hmm. Um, so I tell people to call that. Then there's like checks along the way, right? If you're starting a new, if you have to use ABA or you, you know, need to for whatever reason, like one, don't start in center dropping them off. I always tell parents, start in your home if you can. Um, it's your turf, right? So you can watch without watching, you know, like you're not standing there, but you can be upstairs. Um, and you can hear, like if your child is like crying because they're doing hand over hand to force them to, to do a puzzle, which is something that happened in my home. And I had to stop it in the middle of the session and be like, no. 
um, you know, like that kind of stuff you need to watch for. And then once you've been with an agency for like a while, like a year or more, um, if you feel comfortable dropping off and not being there, then you can move to that. But I really advocate people to start in their homes if at all possible or start in the center with them present. Um, it's really important. Um, the other kind of way I explain it is that for all therapy, right, it exists on like a four square where you have goals and techniques, right? The worst kind of ABA, right, is ableist goals, right? Be normal, stop being so autistic, don't move your hands, don't whatever. Um, and then it, like abusive techniques. So now every time you move your hands, I'm going to electroshock you. I think we all can agree that's bad, right? Then we have the really good, right? We have doing all play-based, it's like so good. The goals are really like serving the child. They're not like for other people's benefits. It's really like use a fork, like stop hitting yourself in the head, right? Like that's a good goal, we can all agree. Um, and the techniques are not like, you know, abusive. They're like kind of your task analysis, like your standard teaching. So those are our two quadrants we can all pretty much agree on. Where the gray area is, which is what people are actually confused about is you can have therapy that has a really bad goal that has really nice techniques. So mm -hmm. something like social thinking is a perfect example. Horrible goal, right? Social thinking, make everyone like you by people pleasing. <laughs> um, <laughs> look around and do what they do and then they'll like you, um, right? So that's a really ableist goal. But the techniques are really nice. A little cartoon, we're gonna color, we're gonna have a little cartoon, get the rock brain, you know? And it seems really nice, right? So parents are confused because they're like, well, it doesn't seem like they're doing anything bad, mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but the goals are where the problem is, right? right? right. Now, the last one is like also a gray area because this is the kind of what if that I get. The goals are good, right? Like we're going to stop this child from hitting themselves in the face. I think we can all agree that's a good idea, okay? But then the techniques are aggressive, right? So they're like, well, we have to hold your child's hands down and restrain them because they're hitting themselves in the face, right? And then that becomes this kind of, well, which is worse? Like, is this, <laughs> you know, like, well, they really shouldn't hit themselves in the face, but I'm not comfortable with what they're doing now either. <laughs> and that becomes like, a, you know, that's where they start making that, like, it's like chemo, it's like a bad medicine for like a good reason. <laughs> like, um, and parents that are in either one of those two quadrants, are really in a confusing ethical dilemma because they're like, I either this therapy doesn't seem bad um, or um, this therapy does seem aggressive, but I really want my kid to stop hitting themselves in the face. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where we want to kind of push them to that good goal, good technique mm -hmm. place. <laughs> if your ABA therapy um, is in that quadrant where the goals are aligned to your child's well being and the techniques are respectful then I'm not so concerned about what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I'm more concerned about the people that are either in one of the other categories and don't know they are, um, or you know, are like really, really concerned mm -hmm. where we have all, you know, it's bad on bad. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you know, and I, I think some of this would provide, you know, would uh, would apply as well if you if you were a provider. And and one of the there's a quote that hangs in my head from from a, a therapist and a friend of mine who who. Uh, once it's something along the lines, if if it doesn't feel right to you, it probably isn't. And, uh, you know, sometimes, um, you know, restraint seclusion, I think, is a good case where uh, you find people in schools that they do it frequently and they have gone through a process where they've come to accept that this is the way that they need 
to do things and they have no other alternative. Uh, and when people come into that system, they, they may question it. They may, um, you know, and, and some question it in such a way uh, as not to, to do it, but, but others will just come to accept that that is the answer. And I think going back to that initial feel, if your initial feel was, this is not the right thing to be doing, it's probably not the right thing to be doing. It's probably not. Yeah. yeah. And I also have parents on the other side now that like really, you know, when they describe it to me, like everything seems fine. Like I'm like really watching it slow, you know, carefully and everything seems okay. Um, but they read a lot, you know, and then, then they get in their heads and they're like, oh, maybe I am, maybe it is like, and then I have to be like, you know, it, it's not, it's not bad for you to stop your child from, you know, sticking their hand in their diaper. Like mm -hmm. that's not, you're not right, like, right. We, they go a little too far, you know? So right, we got to right. kind of strike like a sensible common sense middle ground mm -hmm. where we are treating neurodivergent kids like children that need to be taught and that also need boundaries, mm -hmm. right? Like that's a healthy middle ground. That's not all compliance. And it's also not, you know, where we're telling parents like, you know, chase your kid around all day, everything child led all the time, because sometimes right, parents right. really do have to say, you know, put your seatbelt on because we're going like, right. Right. Um, you know, we can't always co-regulate for four hours when we have to put our seatbelt on. Sometimes it's just time to put your seatbelt on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's try. We're, we're getting close to time here and I don't want to keep you too long, but let's try to get through a couple questions here real quickly. So I'll, I'll throw a few up and sure. maybe we can try to get through a couple of them here. So uh, I'm in Idaho and my two nonverbal kids are in habilitative intervention, uh, which has some ABA components. It's 20 to 40 hours, depending on summer uh, or in school, aside from avoiding uh, adversives, what else should I be looking for, making sure um, our um, services aren't doing the wrong thing for my kids? Uh, great question. I think that a lot of people have the same question. Um, so I would say to make sure that the goals are in service of your child's well-being. Um, you know, what does your child need to do? Do they need to know the months of the year? Or do they need to be able to ask to go to the bathroom? Right. We want to make sure that those goals are meaningful and, and truly in that sense. Um, the other thing is that you don't want your child's um, trust uh, and trusted items, right, to become now collateral for compliance, right? So one of the things they'll do is a reinforcement inventory, right? And then they'll tell you, don't give them these things because we're going to use them, um, you know, for like therapy or whatever. Um, that is a violation of a child's trust in you that their home is going to be a safe place. Um, the other thing, um, that you want to look for is the, the rapport between the therapist and the child. Do you feel, do you trust this person alone with your child? Do you trust that they would make a decision that would be, um, in line with your values if you weren't there watching? Um, and if you feel that mistrust, sometimes it's like just a feeling, but like honor it. Do you know what I mean? Where it's coming from somewhere. Um, so those are like the main things it's really, you know, and then looking at the goals and the practices and just keeping an eye on it. Um, and that's really the best advice I can, I can give you is just watch it closely and then ask questions. Why are you doing that? What, what is that? What benefit does that serve? Does that, do they really need to be doing that right now when they can't blank? Um, that kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, let's get to a couple others here. Um, I'm glad I happened upon this live. Uh, I'm a special education preschool teacher. My agency has had some unofficial talks about starting an ABA program, and I'm hoping to learn ways to voice my concerns about doing ABA 
or learn how or if um, we can provide ABA to children without that being a negative thing? Um, so I'm going to give a sensitive answer to this. You can do something you do can be called ABA um, and can be good. Um, if you're truly actually, you know, following it to the letter, um, it is intrinsically not helpful because it doesn't really look past the surface level, like by definition. Um, so that is just not the way I look at children. Um, and I'm guessing, you know, that it's not the way most early child educator, early childhood educators think or look at children. Um, so that's going to be a little bit of attention. Um, now, can you incorporate some of the principles like task analysis, like that stuff? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, but I also, you know, this is a whole different conversation, but I also have some reservations. Now I'm seeing more um, ABA practices moving into paid positions within school districts. Um, I think it's a power move. So I would just be careful about um, that because um, RBTs are paid abysmally. Um, and if we demonstrate that that's an effective way to educate children and it's extremely cheap and you're in an ununionized state, that's not a good place to be. So I would, um, you know, ask a lot of questions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and from my experience, the RBT might be the person putting a child in a seclusion room or putting a child in a hold. Uh, that yep. seems the yeah. Uh, all right. A couple more uh, comments and questions here. There was a comment from Pam about uh, Dr. Delahook's book, Beyond Behaviors. Uh, I know one that we would both highly recommend. Uh, her Dr. Delahook's work is fantastic. And again, you know, getting into, you know, the question that we've been asked before, like, what are the alternatives? You know, looking at raw screen, looking at Mona Delahook, looking at some of these other options. Uh, let's see what else we have. Um, thank you for explaining and letting me know about the parent training. Interested in finding out more about that. So um, now, are you doing any specific parent training that um, parents can sign up for? Yeah. Or? So I have okay. a parenting class uh, open enrollment right now. Okay. Um, it's called Parenting Your Neurodivergent Child. It's a six-week course. It's going to start the third week of September. Um, I'm doing a week on like most of the big topics. So we're going to do toileting. Uh, behavior, um, eating, um, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, so it's really going to be a great course. Um, I have, um, there's a couple of seats left, um, capping it at 50. And I think we're at like 43 right now. now where, where can people learn about that? It's on my website. So it's www.awteach.com. Okay. Uh, and I'm going to put a link to that in the chat. I, I was going there and I, I thought that's where it would probably be, but I wanted to make sure. Great. Uh, let's see what else we have. A couple more things that we can get to. Uh, let's see what we have here. Uh, this missed thing is still being used as was done to my son in 2013. Uh, uh, that's, that's terrible. Um, horrible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see. Okay. Uh, another comment here. Uh, Morgan said, why is the most important question when it comes to autistic people? Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, that, that really true of, of, um, you know, all the, all, all the kids that are being worked at. I mean, you know, whether it's, you know, certainly we see a, a huge intersection here with uh, disability, with trauma, uh, and, and why is always such an important question, but one that is very often ignored in a behaviorist approach. Yeah. Or they say the why is the function, but there's so many limited, the limit, the choices are so limited. Right, right, right. Uh, lots of thank yous here. We have, a, we have a lot more comments here. Uh, another thank you. Um, 
networking, how do you uh, use expected FBA templates with uh, better wisdom and care? I would uh, say focus on your antecedent interventions. Okay, great. Focus there. Uh, another comment here about self-regulation. Uh, certainly something I think we would probably both agree to. Uh, and lots of great comments here. This has been amazing. Thank you. Um, let's see. And some comments here about the All Teach page. Um, somebody mentioning again, following your gut. Uh, your gut's always important. And of course, there are some some organizations out there. And I'm thinking about the uh, neurodiversity therapist. I'm going to get it wrong here. Um, the collective thing. Yeah. yeah, the collective. That's right. That's right. That, that you know, specialize in finding providers that, that may be, um, you know, really good to think about as well. Um, so I think that brings up kind of the, I mean, there may be some more comments and questions here, but I know we're just about at time here. So I'm uh, like, I'm good. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, I was just going to say, do, do you have anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Any final um, thoughts or... <laughs> So um, let's see if anyone else. Oh, somebody in the comments said OTs can help to look beyond the ABA functions of behavior. I forgot to mention earlier that also a green flag um, is um, practitioners that work as a team with other therapists. The really rigid ones really don't play nice with others. So if you see a practice that has an OT and speech and like whatever, all in the same practice, that's like a good sign. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so the, really what I want to say is, you know, just, just, Think critically about your child's therapy, um, you know, and it's an ongoing process. Things can change, um, you know, and and keep a close eye on it um, and trust your gut. And then if you're unsure about something, you know, ask someone to take a look at it. Ask for a second opinion. Send your child's, you know, out-of-school therapist to go and observe in school. You could do that. Um, you want to really make sure that you don't look away because the school system is really set up to not respect your child. And that when it does happen, it happens through effort and through consistent monitoring and through a team that really cares about your child. And that is not the case everywhere. Um, there are a lot of people that are in this because they're just like, it's you know a job they can get off the street um, and they don't know anything. Um, so really, really, really like, like hone in on who these people are, what do they believe about kids? Um, and when you start feeling like they don't have me or my child's best interests, um, you can fire them like really easily. Like you, people don't know this either. Call the agency and say, I want a new therapist. You can do it. I've seen people that have gone through a lot of therapists, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. you can change BCBAs at the same place. You can say, I don't like this BCBA. I want a different one. Um, you know, if it's not going well, change it. Don't wait. It's not a wait and see situation. It's a, it's a, if it crosses a boundary for you, it's one and done for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I love Olivia's comment too, about the, the OTs. And, and it takes me back to uh, an interview we did with Greg Santusi. And, and, and as Greg was talking, one of the things that kind of um, came to my, my mind was, you know, so often when kids are having behaviors, of course, we look at the behavior. Uh, as Ross Green would say, the behavior is the, the, the signal. It's the fever. Right. Um, but but from a behaviorist lens, that's where the focus is. And and what came to, to mind when I was talking to, to Greg was how, you know, our first response might be to do a functional behavior assessment. But we don't stop and look at the environment. And we don't, you know, and, and I was thinking about the role of the OT. And Olivia and I actually had a conversation a few weeks ago. And uh, we were talking about that, you know, 
the potential of OTs well beyond what they're being used for. Oh God, in, in yeah. Tools. And I mean, we really should. We shouldn't just be looking at the child. And, and there's so much focus on fixing the child instead of sometimes looking at the environment and, and why might this be difficult? And you mentioned it early on, uh, you were talking about, I think it was a question about transitions and you talked about how maybe everybody's getting up, but an OT is trained to look for things that a behaviorist is not. A behaviorist is looking at the fever. They're looking at the signal. They're not looking at what in that environment might've caused it. Okay. And I got a, a good response from Olivia here said preach, but I want to uh, say one more thing. Yeah, sometimes yeah. a lot of times, it is the teacher that is the problem. And teachers don't like to hear this. And I, but as an educator, you, it should be your first impulse that you are the problem, mm -hmm. especially if you have multiple kids engaging in the same behaviors, mm -hmm. right? If your classroom is chaotic, if you're having everyone in your class hates doing work and you're having to over, you know, motivate, what are you doing in that class? <laughs> Maybe it's boring, right? Like maybe you actually aren't animated enough. Maybe you aren't like drawing the kids in, right? Maybe the structure of your classroom isn't right. Maybe you're doing too much whole group instruction, which is usually the case. Um, you actually have to look at yourself first. The amount of times I've done evaluations for kids where it's a behavior case and then I get there and the kid can't read and nobody knows, right? Mm -hmm. I'll test him and I'm like, does I always on grade level? No, he's not. <laughs> he right. certainly is not. Right. Um, you know, and there's huge academic problems that's, you know, causing all these behaviors. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so we have to really, as educators and I, you know, I was a, a self-contained like special education teacher for six years. Mm -hmm. Um, it should be your first impulse mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. look at yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and there are a lot of amazing teachers out there, but, but there are also teachers out there that are, um, in the vein of behaviorism, I would say very compliance-based. It's all about compliance. And, and what I can tell you is that a lot of the children and families that, that I talk to, and, and even from my own experience, uh, you know, my son was, was not one that when he was having a hard time, he could be inflexible. He could have very black and white thinking. And if the, the educator's response mm -hmm. to that inflexibility was to be inflexible, to be, I am in charge and this is what you will do, they would escalate the situation. And, and so many times I've had conversations with parents or families and, and child A, who was being restrained and secluded in school, A over here, moves to a different school or with a different teacher and the relationships are strong and the problems evaporate. So you're absolutely right. And I, I, I'm sure that's a hard realization for people to make. But I but I do think a lot of it goes back to this idea of behaviorism approaches, where it's all about compliance and control, rather than building relationships and helping kill kids, as Ross Green would say, you know, build the skills and solve the problems that they need to solve to be successful. Yeah, agreed. And they're really good teachers, like it's actually, it's like a, you know, you got to be in a growth mindset, you know, like, mm -hmm. really good teachers actually are good because they do that. Right, because they reflect, because they think it's them, right? And so they're constantly like, oh, that lesson didn't go right. Like there's something like, why is this happening? Why is he having so many behaviors like in my class specifically, um, right? The really, really good educators are reflective um, and are constantly evolving their practice. Uh, being a good teacher is not a set skill. It's actually a set of practices rooted in reflection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
Well, listen, Robin, this has been fantastic. Uh, you know, I, I feel like after the uh, presentation, I need to call you Professor Rosignol. Uh, very, 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 no, very, I mean, your research is, is amazing. Um, and, and this is really, really informative. And, and I appreciate the, the approach you take with this. I mean, realizing that there's a lot of people that are, that are trying hard to, uh, you know, help kids. And, and we've got practices out there that certainly uh, we, we want to uh, avoid. But um, you know, also trying to figure out how, how we navigate a system. It's really tough. It's tough to be a parent uh, and tr try to figure out what's the best thing that I can do to, to help my child. And of course, um, so important to listen to voices that sometimes aren't heard in all of this. Uh, again, I go back to the, the autistic self-advocates who have had experience and, and can share a lot, um, but it's always so informative. I, I really enjoyed having you here today and appreciate you coming back a second time. And that means I can start thinking about the third because this presentation has actually been on on our mind because I know we talked about doing something I know, like so before. Long. <laughs> yeah, and, and when I saw that recent presentation you did uh, for a TED Talk, I thought, oh, I've got to get Robin back. This is this is fantastic. Anytime. So yeah, thank you so much. Long time listener, second time. Absolutely. Caller. Well, I appreciate all that you're doing uh, and would uh, encourage the audience that's watching to to certainly follow uh, Robin's work, not only on, on the website, but on TikTok. You do really some some great and amazing things. Um, so thank you so much. And I will let you go. I'm going to make a couple announcements here. But but thank you again, Robin. All right. So uh, thank you for everybody that's joined us. I do want to give you a quick uh, announcement for our next session. Uh, and I hope you've enjoyed uh, today's um, session. Again, I encourage you share this with your, you know, your friends, your, you know, if you're a parent, share it with your teachers. If you're a teacher, share it with your, your parents. Um, you know, these, these are always great conversation uh, conversations to have and, and hopefully helping people uh, as they're putting thought into the best ways to support their kids. So uh, please join us again next time in two weeks. Uh, I've got a special guest, Gail Quigley. Uh, Gail is a experienced educator in Australia. She's actually now a member of our Alliance volunteer team as well. Uh, she's going to be talking about restorative practices. Uh, she's been doing a lot of uh, research on trauma and disability. Uh, and I think it's going to be a really fantastic talk. Uh, she will be getting up bright and early in Australia uh, while we will be doing our normal Thursday time. It will be morning in Australia, I think something like uh, 530 in the morning. So I apologize to her for that, but uh, join us. It'll, it'll certainly be a great one. So thank you again, everybody, for joining us again. Follow us on social media and I uh, look forward to seeing everybody again next time. All right. Thanks. Take care.